This season on Three Things, we're zoning in on one theme, peak performance. What does it take to achieve greatness? How do you maintain it? And how do you continually find areas to improve in every area of your life? People are driven by different things. To me, the great peak performers out there are the people that are driven by this notion of there's always another gear. There's always a way to get better. It's two people, 20 minutes, and three things with Rick Elias. Today's guest is Andy Roddick, the former number one professional tennis player in the world. Andy won the US Open in 2003, and the next year he broke the record for the world's fastest serve at 155 miles per hour. That's one-sixth the speed of the rotation of the Earth. He held on to a top 10 world ranking for nearly a decade, and then on his 30th birthday suddenly announced his retirement. Rick asked Andy what it takes to become number one. How do you sustain that level of performance over time? And how do you make the call when it's time to move on to something else? This is Three Things with Rick Elias. Andy, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. So Andy, let's get right to it. You were number one in the world at something that is hyper competitive. What did it take to do that? I don't know. I, you know, I, I think you, you play hard and you practice when you're seven, eight, nine years old. You're good in your city. You're good in the state. You're good in the country. But it doesn't just go from like zero to 60 that quickly, right? Right. And then all of a sudden you're 17, you grow a little bit and you have a you know, you fast forward from there when you're 21, you have a decent summer and you're there. You know, you, I, I don't know that you really think too much about it. You just kind of it, it's a lot of mini decisions that lead up to a big result, I think. Did tennis pick you or did you pick tennis? I, I, I'm, it's funny you ask that because I tell anyone who, who will actually have the patience to listen to me is that you know, when people ask, well, what sport should I put our children in? I said, I think you expose them to as much as possible. So the sport normally chooses you. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think kids are too different from adults in the fact that we like doing things we're good at, yeah. you know, and, and, and that was the case with me. I played baseball. I enjoyed that. But I also liked the clarity of tennis where you either went out and you were good enough or you weren't. You know, it wasn't because of a teammate. You know, it wasn't because, you know, and, and conversely, you couldn't have an off night and just pass the ball off. So I kind of like the lessons that that uh, that were implied in, in tennis from from an early age. That's neat. There's this two theories now. There's the 10,000-hour theory, uh, and now this new book that came out, Range, which is, you know, you should give, you know, the, 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 the experience and the range of experiences is really vital in someone finding kind of their passion what they're good at. And as you're saying, you know, range is, is, is part of your philosophy. Well, I feel like I put in 10,000 hours too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know. I, it, either or, I, you know, I try not to deal in, in, in absolutes too much. But, you know, in early age, I was exposed to a lot. And then, you know, once I was good at tennis and, you know, was kind of showing results that warranted traveling, doing different things, committing more time to it, I felt like there had to be a singular focus right. at a certain right. point. So, you know, I, I always say, I, I think you can have it all, maybe just not at the same time. What did it feel like to be the best at something in the world? Well, I was ranked number one. I don't know that that meant I was the best in the world at that time. But <laughs> there was a guy named Federer who had different ideas and took it back for me and ran with it for, uh, I guess we're going on 16 years now. But um, it, I, I don't know. It's just something you can't take away. I think the coolest part for me uh, of actually getting, you know, well, the, I, I'd gotten the number one ranking, but then there's this kind of prestige factor with ending the year number one, right? right, right. So you kind of have the total thing of the of the entire year, and, and that's kind of the thing. There's only a select few that, that have that have done that. Um, my idol and hero in the tennis world was a guy named Andre Agassi, mm -hmm. who's a great, great player from America. And we got down to the last tournament of the year, which is a World Tour Finals, top eight guys. And I was in contention for the number one ranking with two other guys. Long story short, 
if Andre beat Juan Carlos Ferrero, I was number one in the world. So for me, it was like the ultimate because it was like the guy that I watched when I was seven, right. eight, nine years old and made all the bad wardrobe choices with, you know, he was the only guy who could get me to wear like neon spandex, right? Uh, I, I had a friend who was in the stadium with his phone out. Um, it was before, you know, streaming and all that, right. which, which was easy, but uh, he was holding his phone out and basically the crowd went nuts. I knew that Andre won the point if it was kind of silent or reserved that the other guy won the point. So championship point, Andre wins. So Andre Agassi ended up winning a match. So my idol won a match, which made me number one in the world. That's so it, wild. So it was awesome. So for me, that's kind of the story that, that sticks with me. And, and it kind of connects the, you know, eight, nine-year-old fan version of me who was just obsessed with all these players and then made it 12 years later, made it kind of this new reality. I, it, it, it was a cool kind of uh, – connection and it was it, that that's kind of the part that i'll remember so, so how quickly thereafter did you talk to him i probably saw him the next day i might have sent him a text right you know and just said you know well, yeah thanks for being my idol and winning tonight beer, beers on me <laughs> yeah, or something exactly. right? a lot more than beers yeah <laughs> right, right, right. so you know i am really curious when you get to that level right when you're that at the cutting edge how did you motivate yourself to get better for me you know sports is is interesting because it's it, the, the question is always asked, right? I, I think the motivation came, it comes from a lot of places. It, it comes from almost a fear of expectation, right? You, mm -hmm. you, you don't want to disappoint anyone. And uh, I certainly felt, felt that as an American on the heels of you know, our greatest players were, you know, Sampras, Agassi, you know, Mackin O'Connor. So we had this long line right, where it's right. like, you're, you're the next guy and you're just trying to kind of live up That's to That's a lot it. of pressure. Yeah, you do. Well, yeah, it, it, but it's also a great opportunity. You know, yeah, you, you, yeah. you want to be kind of associated with, with those guys. So it's, it's fear, it's ego. I was pretty stubborn. Um, my, my dad was pretty tough military background. So you just kind of, yeah. you, you, you tried to step up. I, you know, I, I don't know that it was one thing, but yeah, I, I don't think people talk about doing things. Like I, I feared not living up to it, you know, and it ended up being a great thing. And I don't think I did, but it was constantly on my mind and it was a responsibility that I took seriously. Right. So it was almost, you know, you were trying to keep up with these ghosts from from tennis past. And for me, I woke up every morning not wanting to uh, kind of disrespect the legacy that they had created. You know, as much as being number one in the world is amazing, what I admire the most about your journey uh, as a professional player is sustained greatness. You know, to be in the top 10 for a decade or almost a decade, uh, that's remarkable. What what did it take? I, I say that I, <laughs> I think, like we had just talked about, a healthy dose of ego, but I, I also, I, I think I failed better than a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I had a thing where I, I, I failed in a lot of ways in front of a lot of people on a lot of the grandest stages uh, in our sport, but regardless of how sorry for myself I was feeling, I was always able to get out of bed and put in the work. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of something I was able to hang my hat on. Um, you know, I'm, I, I know I wasn't the one of the best of all time. I know it wasn't probably the best of the generation that we're seeing now i mean the three guys that are that i was trying to compete for titles against are still going and they're the, the three best players of all time um but i never wanted to go to sleep with a question on i was fine with the talent thing if, if i'm not as talented if i'm not as good but for me it was controlling the controllables so yeah. if i lost a match because i wasn't prepared physically if i lost a match because i lost a temper if i lost a match because my diet was bad and i was feeling badly at the end of a match or that would infuriate me, you know, right, right. Roger being Roger and, you know, him just being an, an all timer that that stunk a lot of the time. But right. 
it, it wasn't something that I could immediately control uh, wholly. So for me, my focus was was a lot on, you know, have I eaten two hours before a track workout? Have I stretched afterwards? Have I put in the time, the work? Was I diligent? Was I professional? And uh, I could sleep well if the answer was yes. How important was nutrition, sleep, all the things that are the rave now? How, how much of that was in vogue then? Uh, it was starting to become that way. So I was one of the first guys who, you know, on the, on the ATB tour for a long time, you had the locker room and you had the tour trainers in the locker room. So if you needed right. a stretch, if you needed to get some treatment for an injury, they were there and it was kind of like the center was, was, was at the tennis venue. And I actually hired someone from the tour and I didn't want to hang out at the courts all day. I felt like that was taxing. I didn't want to right. see all the guys I was trying to beat. I didn't want to have a million little sub conversations throughout the day. I wanted to be a little bit more selfish about it. Um, and so we would get an extra hotel room and that would be our training room. Yeah. And, and for me, that was great because I could kind of dictate terms of my own schedule. And, uh, and then later on, I made a big commitment to, to nutrition to try to give my, I had kind of fallen back, you know, six in the world, eight in the world. It was just, a, yeah. It was, it's still fine, but it was a very obvious trend that wasn't going the way that I wanted it to go. <laughs> and so I had a coach who said, listen, let's lose weight. We got to focus on your diet. You're this kind of bull, but you're not going to win a slam at, you know, 215 or 220 or whatever you were. And it wasn't, you know, uh, unfit, but it was just a different type. So the, the game was more about movement. And so it became a lot about nutrition. And so uh, I was always trying something different. You know, I, I, I wanted to exhaust every resource, every bit of knowledge. Uh, I, I didn't want to say at the end of my career, I wish I'd tried that because yeah, maybe yeah. that would have been the difference. Maybe that would have, you know, been two points difference between Wimbledon and not Wimbledon. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, it was, it was a huge deal, uh, kind of throughout my career. And now it's even taken, uh, to the max. And a lot of, a lot of people kind of criticize these guys for having big entourages. And I say entourage has a negative connotation because you feel like it's just people telling you, yes, right. right. I said, as long as someone's adding value, if, if Roger Federer has a chiropractor that he likes from home who knows his body and he doesn't have to explain right. injuries week to week and change it, I go, yeah, most people, m most businesses are get applauded for investing in themselves. But when it's an athlete, it's somehow weird. That's so true. You know, and, so and I don't think that's the case. And I think you're seeing a lot of athletes being really smart uh, in, in making sure that their team members add value. And if they add value, crap, keep bringing them, you know, pay for more. I don't, you know, these guys are obviously right. doing something right. You know, I was really lucky this summer to be at the finals in Wimbledon. It was my first time there and it was an epic match yep. between Djokovic and, uh, and Federer. And, you know, you're watching these two guys go at it, two guys from, you know, kind of you played a lot against. And it struck me that the two of them in Nadal, as you said, they're in their mid to late 30s and they're still dominating a sport. First, I feel really bad for the next generation. It's almost like they never got, these guys have been at it for two decades. But there's this trend, like you see it in quarterbacks and you see it in other sports, like, you know, people are, you know, very effective later on in life. Did you, did you retire too early? I don't think I did. And that's, your question is almost purely based on, on, on tennis. So fair point. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not that easy or clear. Uh, I don't, I don't think I did. I think, um, one thing I would have done, which is counterintuitive to, I'd say 99.9% .9 of athletes. And it's something I actually am a little jealous of Roger for being able to do is, uh, I, I worked so hard. If I had to give myself advice that I would have said, take pockets of time. Mm to relax, let your body recover. Don't be the macho guy and play through an injury. Don't, you know, come back too soon. I needed the matches 
to feel confident. I couldn't lose a practice set on Saturday right. and go in on Monday and say, I got this. That's you know, it wasn't this inner, I was a little bit more insecure than most of the players of, I guess, of my caliber. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas Roger at the end of, what was it at the end of 2016 had uh, a little bit of a knee issue, had a scope done, um, probably could have been back for the U.S. Open, didn't play anything after that, didn't play for six months. Right. Comes back healthy and wins the Australian Open for his first slam in three or four years. Right, right. It's like, I, I wish I would have had a, a, a little more patience and a bit more of a long view about things. You know, it's interesting. It comes back to our conversation earlier around nutrition and mm -hmm. sleep and rest. And, you know, I think, I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but in many ways, Kawhi Leonard looked completely fresh at the end because they were resting him all season. And I don't think we really understand, you know, the tax on the bodies that the repetition does. And I think you're out, you're alluding to this. Well, I, I think the culture of sports has changed a little bit, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you see someone who's revolutionary like uh, a, a Bill Belichick or a Greg Popovich when Popovich is just saying, listen, I know you want to see our stars when they come to your city. I also don't care right. because <laughs> I would like to win more titles, right? So in it where it used to be like, if you're healthy, you play. And if you play through an injury, if it's not, right, right. you know, if you're not in surgery, then you're getting through it. And, you know, you used to be this whole so true. kind of culture of numbing the pain and playing harder. And, right. you know, now we learn about things like, you know, not to go super dark, but you learn about things like CTE, where maybe you should actually take a second if you get hit in the head or, you know, you, muscle tears coming back too soon. You tend to tear them more and more and more. And as we look at sports as you are investing in your stars for the, 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 the betterment of your franchise, right. maybe we should protect our investments a little bit better. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, the, the culture and kind of the rhetoric around athletes being tough has changed a lot. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's kind of now shifted more to athletes being smart. How, uh, how and when did you know it was time? Uh, I went to bed the night before I retired, not having thought about it much. And I woke up the next morning and decided I was going to retire and walked in that afternoon. And that was that. Wow. No looking back? Uh, no. Um, no. I, I mean, I think I'm lucky. I think one of the things that's undersold with athletes in retirement and it's funny, I get asked like, oh, do you, do you miss it? I said, well, of course I miss it. And they go, well, how's the transition been? I go, it's been amazing. Right, right. You know, and, and people almost don't want to hear that. Yeah. They will, I think they want to hear, like I, I wor I've worked in uh, broadcasting a little bit and you hear, you know, I've heard football guys who in the, in the same story, they'll say, you know, I, I, I leave home, I'm going to the grocery store, I get a couple miles away and I can't remember where I'm going. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, that's insane. Like what, and they go, but I would, I would do anything to have one more year. Yeah. I'm going, uh, I'm not willing to make that trade off, right. man. Like right. I, that, that, that's, that doesn't make any sense to yeah. me. You know, the thing people don't realize is that when an athlete retires, they're also most of the time retiring from their social life, right. their social existence, their social circles, their social orbit. For me, that always existed at home. Right. Um, for the most part, I have a couple of great friends from tennis, but as we referenced earlier, I didn't spend all day at the courts. I didn't like to, right. I would show up, I would work and I would, I would go home. Um, and I, I always had interest outside of tennis. So for me, I think the transition was a little bit easier, but you know, I see some guys who will quit tour and be coaching on tour two weeks later. Right. I'm like, right, you don't right. even need a little break. <laughs> like you've been doing this since you were, you were, you were eight. <laughs> like you don't want to take like a breather, maybe like go, like, go on a vacation or something. Uh, did, uh, how do you get, you know, that competitive 
uh, urge? You know, is there something you do to continue to challenge yourself or to push yourself today? Yeah. So for me, it was, it, it, it's interesting. I kind of get looked at like I, uh, like I have three heads sometimes, but I don't really do anything in, in tennis anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a couple things around the U S open or, but I don't travel. I don't coach. I'm not involved. I, you know, so for me, I wanted to learn about, you know, different things in business and different things in investing. And so for me, I'm asking questions a lot more than I have any answers. And that's because I'm actually not around the thing that I would be an expert on, uh, hardly any, uh, uh, of my time. So, you know, for me, it was next steps. And, you know, I, 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 I didn't want to sit in the commentary box right. and, and preach to people or talk about something that I knew, or I, I didn't want to be comfortable. So I think for me, if I feel too comfortable, then I probably need to, to, to figure out a way to challenge uh, myself a little bit more. So you, uh, I heard a story that you threw away all your trophies, but the U S open trophy. Is that correct? It's correct in sentiment. I kept about four or five. Okay. Um, and it wasn't, it's, it's weird. Cause people, I, I don't really even think of it in the same terms. Like afterwards people ask me about it. I go, yeah, I guess that's a little weird. We were moving. Um, <laughs> and these things just take up a lot of, I mean, and that sounds arrogant, but there, there was, there was a lot of like clutter, you know? Um, and do I, so, so did you just throw like, them in do the I trash? Like, do you yeah, donate like, them? Like, What'd you do? It's like these, I just threw them in the trash. There was a garbage dumpster out, out front and I just took them out and my wife got home. and was like, what'd you do? I was like, I cleaned. You know, so, Can you imagine the trash guy going like, oh, look at this. Well, but it's like, I don't know. I mean, I, I you have the memories from it, right? And right, like, right. There's like a trophy from like San Jose in 2008. Like it's a yeah. big thing. And I go unless you want people to see it, what's the point? Right. You know, it doesn't really right. matter that, you know, you can check and see I was there. I won. It's not, not, I don't need it for proof. Right. Um, right. you know, but I kept the four or five that, uh, are really, really special to me. Um, and you know, they're not on show. They're in like the back of our house somewhere, but right. you know, sometimes you have company and people want to see something. And so you, you, you show them that or, but, um, yeah, I got rid of, I don't even know how many there were, but it was, there was a, my wife was pretty pissed. She was just going to give it to our son. I'm like, what's he going to do with it? Like that's 20 years from now, whatever. Like just a couple more questions. Um, what advice would you give a, a young athlete or a young professional? doesn't have to be sports that wants to achieve, you know, as much greatness as they were meant to achieve. What, what, what would you tell them? I, I would say, think about today before you think about uh, a career, right? So, mm. Uh, a high school athlete's like, I want to go pro. It's like, okay, well, you're a freshman. So you have four years of actually, right. you know, like, like we alluded, I, I said it earlier, but a lot of many, many, many decisions lead up to a big result eventually. Right. Um, but be responsible for those many decisions, right? You know, you, you'll hear some out there get in trouble and they're like, oh, I was out late. And of course I got, you know, well, it's a mini decision that led to something that wasn't great. All right. Um, so I'm a big believer in that. I, I, I said earlier, control the controllables, right? So, you know, parents could be overbearing, uh, weather could be tough, conditions could be bad, coach might make bad decisions. Really focus on what you can control. I feel like people almost use it as like a pressure relief valve, being able to point at someone else and say, that's actually affecting me. Right. You know, whereas, okay, that's fine. But if you're going to point, you need to point inward and say, what are you doing negatively that's affecting you? Mm-hmm. Um, that was, that, I think that's a big thing. There's so much noise out there now, especially with, 
I don't even know what I'm going to do with kids and social media and all that. Well, uh, you know, I, I have teenagers. Believe me, it's yeah. It's, so it's I a would, lose lose situation. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, if, I I don't envy that position right now. I know it's coming my way, but um, just really kind of focus inward, simplify. Right. I have to go to you know. Oh, I'm so overwhelmed. I have class. I have this. Okay, get through class. Then once that's done, let's practice. Right. And let's do it as well as we can. Right. You know, let's sleep as much as we can. If you're tired, you know, let's just kind of pragmatically try to fix uh things on a case-by-case basis instead of getting too far ahead of yourself and worrying what you know uh, the guy three desks over is doing yeah ron rivera uh, the head coach for the panthers uh tells his players he's like you know be where your feet are yes right it's just another way of saying exactly the same thing which is you know be in that moment and be the best that moment that's a better way to say it i'm going to start saying it that way yeah i plagiarize everything (laughs) i say (laughs) that's now mine (laughs) so ron rivera copy you yeah i can't believe you did that that's all right it's 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 unoriginal from him but it's okay (laughs) uh toughest opponent for me, it was Roger. It, 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 a lot of it, it, you get to a certain level, it's about matchups, right? Like yeah. Novak has a winning record overall against Roger. I had a disaster of a record against Roger and barely a winning record against Novak, right? So how does that make any sense at all? It shouldn't, but it's based on matchups. Everything that I did well, which I thought was a strength, yeah. didn't really bother Roger too much, right? He was able to react to pace pretty well. He was able to switch positions, get back to neutral, find my weak spot. You know, I, I feel like we played the same point for a decade, and I won forty-eight percent of them, which manifests <laughs> itself into into in, in a three and twenty-one record, right? So sounds like roulette. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, it's like a, well, you know, and I just casino. went, I just went in hoping that well, you know, on a given day, I'd win fifty-two percent of them, right? And Blackjack, I, I mean, that exactly. is so funny. So uh, for me, it was matchup based, but right. you know, I not to say that I wholeheartedly think. You know, I, I think those three are the greatest of all time. Me saying Roger was toughest isn't making a declaration on, on the Understand. record books, but um, it was it was the hardest one for for me to problem solve. It's going to be super exciting to see you uh, continue to do the same things you did in tennis in other areas of your life. Ten years from now, last question: We sit again. What is uh, what is Andy Roddick doing? Gosh, uh, ho- honestly, hopefully more the same, but just better. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm intrigued by business. I'm intrigued by real estate. I'm intrigued by Hopefully the foundation has has grown and it's not a a, a, a one market uh, situation. Um, you know, it's just you're, you're driving the kids to different things. You know, instead of preschool, it's a sporting event. You know, so <laughs> they may be driving themselves. Soon. I, I, I get, and it's weird. I, I just don't. I, I I rarely, unless it's in regards to to the kids, I don't often think that far right. ahead. Oh, I'm, by I'm, the way, they may not need to be driven maybe there's a car coming to pick them uh, up right? so that's, a, that's another world. conversation yeah. <laughs> <laughs> listen an absolute privilege to have uh, uh such a class act here thank you andy for coming in yeah thanks for having me i appreciate it thank you that was really neat i hope you enjoyed listening to andy as much as i did here are the three things i took away as it relates to peak performance number one is the power of humility He talked about being more insecure than other players of his generation. That is something so unique in this day and age when we all walk around with masks of invincibility. Number two was hearing about the importance of sleep and rest. In Andy's case, he pushed, pushed, pushed because that was what culture told him to do. But in other cases, when athletes and other professionals take the time to rest their minds and their bodies, not only do they tend to stay on top for longer, but they do it at a higher level. 
And number three was the impact that fear had on Andy's success. I believe that too few people are truly brave and that what is required is courage to face our fears. Andy used that courage throughout his career to get the best out of his skills. If you're enjoying the Three Things Podcast, let us know. Be sure to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.